Section 3 of The Machine That Saved the World by Maury Lensker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sergeant Blues ushered Lecky into the rehab shop. There was the pleasant, disorderly array of devices with their wavering standby lights. They gave an effect of being alive, but somehow it was not disturbing. They seemed not so much intent as meditative, and not so much watchful as interested. When the sergeant and his guest moved past them, the unrhythmic waverings of the small yellow lights seemed to change, hopefully, as if the machines anticipated being put to use. Which, of course, was absurd. Mahan machines do not anticipate anything. They probably do not remember anything, though patterns of operation are certainly retained in very great variety. The fact is that a Mahan unit is simply a device to let a machine stand idle without losing the nature of an operating machine. The basic principle goes back to antiquity. Ships in ancient days had manners and customs individual to each vessel. Some were sweet craft, easily handled and staunch and responsive. Others were stubborn and begrudging of all helpfulness. Sometimes they were even man-killers. These facts had no rational explanation, but they were facts. In similarly olden times, particular weapons acquired personalities to the point of having personal names, Excalibur, for example. Every fighting man knew of weapons which seemed to possess personal skill and ferocity. Later, workmen found that certain tools had a knack of fitting smoothly in the hand, seeming even to divine the grain of the wood they worked on. The individual characteristics of violins were notorious, so that a violin which sang joyously under the bow was literally priceless. In all these things, as a matter of observation and not of superstition, kept their qualities only when in constant use. Let a ship be hauled out of water and remain there for a while, and she would be clumsy on return to her native element. Let a sword or tool stay unused, and it seemed to dull. In particular, the finest of violins lost its splendor of tone, if left unplayed, and any violin left in a repair shop for a month had to be played upon constantly for many days before its living tone came back. The sword and the tool, perhaps, but the ship and the violin certainly acted as if they acquired habits of operation by being used, and lost them by disuse. When more complex machines were invented, such facts were less noticeable. True, no two automobiles ever handled exactly the same, and that was recognized. But the fact that no complex machine worked well until it had run for a time was never commented on, except in the observation that it needed to be warmed up. Anybody would have admitted that a machine in the act of operating was a dynamic system in a solid group of objects. But nobody reflected that a stopped machine was a dead thing. Nobody thought to liken the warming-up period for an airplane engine to the days of playing before a disused, dulled violin regained its tone. Yet it was obvious enough. A ship and a sword and a tool and a violin were objects in which dynamic systems existed when they were used, and which ceased to exist when use stopped, 
and nobody noticed that a living creature is an object which contains a dynamic system when it is living and loses it by death. For nearly two centuries, quite complex machines were started and warmed up and used, and then allowed to grow cold again. In time, the more complex machines were stopped only reluctantly. Computers, for example, came to be merely turned down below operating voltage when not in use, because warming them up was so difficult and exacting a task, which was an unrecognized use of the Mahan principle. It was a way to keep a machine activated while not actually operating. It was a state of rest, of loafing, of idleness, which was not the death of a running mechanism. The Mahone unit was a logical development. It was an absurdly simple device, and not in the least like a brain. But to the surprise of everybody, including its inventor, a Mahone-modified machine did more than stayed warmed up. It retained operative habits as no complex devices had ever done before. In time, it was recognized that Mahan-modified machines acquired experience and kept it so long as the standby light glowed and flickered in its socket. If the lamp went out, the machine died, and when re-energized, was a different individual entirely, without experience. Sergeant Ballews made such large-minded statements as were needed to brief Leckie on the work done in this installation with Mahan-controlled machines. They don't talk, he explained negligently, any more than dogs think. They just react like dogs do. They get patterns of reaction. They get trained, experienced. They get good. Over at the airfield, they're walking around beaming happy over the way the jets are flying themselves. Leckie gazed around the rehab shop. There were shelves of machines duly boxed and equipped with Mon units, but not yet activated. Activation meant turning them on and giving them a sort of basic training in the task they were designed to do. But also there were machines which had broken down, invariably through misuse, said Sergeant Ballou's acidly, and had been sent to the rehab shop to be retrained in their proper duties. Guys see him acting sensible and obediently, said Belouz with bitterness, and expect him to think. Over at the jet field, they finally came to understand, his tone moderated. Now they got jets that put down their own landing gear, and holler when fuel's running low, and do acrobatics happy if you only jiggle the stick. They might nearly fly themselves, I tell you, if well-trained Mahan jets ever do tangle with old-style machines. It's going to be a caution to cats. It'll be like a pack of happy terriers piling into hamsters. It'll be murder. He surveyed his stock. From a back corner, he brought out a small machine with an especially meditative tempo when its standby lamp flickered. The tempo accelerated a little when he put it on a workbench. They got batteries to stay activated with, he observed, and only need real juice when they're working. This here is a playback recorder they had over in recreation. Some guys trained it to switch frequencies, speed up and slow down stuff. They laughed themselves sick. There used to be a tough guy over there, a staff sergeant he was, that gave lectures on military morals in a deep bass voice. He was proud of all that bold voice of his. He used it frequently. So they taped him. And Al here, the name plainly referred to the machine, 
used to play it back, switched up, so he sounded like a squeaky girl. That poor guy, he liked to bust at a blood vessel when he heard himself speak in soprano. He raised hell when they sent Al here back to be rehabilitated. But I switched another machine for him and sent it back instead. Of course, Al don't know what he's doing, but he brought over another device, slightly larger and with a screen. Somebody had a bright notion with this one, too, he said. They figured they'd scramble pictures for secret transmission, like they scramble voice. But they found they had to have trained sets to work, and they weren't interchangeable. They sent Gus here to be deactivated and trained again. I kind of hate to do that. Sometimes you got to deactivate a machine, but it's like shooting a dog somebody's taught to steal eggs who don't know what's wrong. He bolted the two instruments together. He made connections with the flexible cables and tucked the cable out of sight. He plugged it in for power and began to make adjustments. The small scientist asked curiously, What are you preparing, Sergeant? These two will unscramble that broadcast, said Sergeant Belouz, with tranquil confidence. Al's learned how to make a tape and switch frequencies expert. Gus here, he's a unscrambler that can make any kind of scanning pattern. Together they'll have a party doing what they're special trained for. We'll hook them up to Betsy's training terminals. He regarded the two machines warmly. Connected, now, their standby lights flickered at a new tempo. They synchronized and broke synchrony and went back into elaborate, not quite resolvable patterns which were somehow increasingly integrated as seconds went by. Those lights look kind of nice, don't they? asked the sergeant admiringly. Makes you think of a couple of dogs getting acquainted when they're going out on a job of hunting or something. But Lecky said abruptly in amazement, But, Sergeant, in the Pentagon it takes days to unscramble or receive broadcasts such as Betsy received. It requires experts. Huh, said Sergeant Belouz. He picked up the two machines. Don't get me started about the kind of guys that wangle headquarter company jobs. They got a special talent for falling soft, but they haven't necessarily got anything else. Lecky followed Sergeant Belouz as the sergeant picked up his new combination of devices and headed out of the rehab shop. Outside in the sunshine there were roarings to be heard. Lecky looked up. A formation of jets swam into the view against the sky. A tiny speck trailing a monstrous plume of smoke shot upward from the jet field. The formation tightened. The ascending jet jiggled as if in pure exuberance as it swooped upward, but the jiggle was beautifully designed to throw standard automatic gun sights off. A plane peeled off from the formation and dived at the ascending ship. There was a curious alteration in the thunder of motors. The rate of rise of the climbing jet dwindled almost to zero. Sparks shot out before it. They made a cone that diving ship could not avoid. It sped through them and then went as if disappointingly to a lower level. It stood by to watch the rest of the dogfight. Nice, said Sergeant Belouz appreciatively. That's a Mahan jet all by itself, training against regular ships. They have to let it shoot star bullets in training or it'd get hot and bothered in a real fight when its guns went off. The lower jet streaked skyward once more. Sparks sped from the formation. They flared through emptiness where the Mahan jet had been, but what now was not. 
It scuttled abruptly to one side as concerted streams of spark converged. They missed. It darted into zestful, exuberant maneuverings, remarkably like a dog, dashing madly here and there in pure high spirits. The formation of planes attacked it resolutely. Suddenly the lone jet plunged into the midst of the formation. There were coruscations of the little shooting stars, and one, two, three planes disgustingly descended to the lower levels as out of action. Then the single ship shot upward, seemed eagerly to shake itself, plunged back, and the last ships tried wildly to escape, but each in turn was technically shot down. The Mahan jet headed back for its own tiny airfield. Somehow, it looked as if, had it been a dog, it would be wagging its tail and panting happily. That one ship, said Lecky blankly, it defeated the rest? It's got a lot of experience, said the sergeant. You can't beat experience. He led the way into communications center. In the room where Betsy stood, Howell and Graves had been drawing diagrams at each other to the point of obstinacy. But don't you see, insisted Howell angrily, there can be no source other than a future time. You can't send short waves through three-dimensional space to a given spot and not have them interceptable between. Anyhow, the compubs wouldn't work it this way. They wouldn't put us on guard, and an extraterrestrial wouldn't pretend to be a human if he honestly wanted to warn us of danger. He'd tell us the truth. Physically and logically, it's impossible for it to be anything but what it claims to be. Graves said doggedly, but a broadcast originating in the future is impossible. Nothing, snapped Howe, that a man can imagine is impossible. Then imagine for me, said Graves, that in 2180 they read in the history books about a terrible danger to the human race back in 1972, which was averted by a warning they sent us. Then, from their history books, which we wrote for them, they learn how to make a transmitter to broadcast back to us. Then they tell us how to make a transmitter to broadcast ahead to them. They don't invent a transmitter. We tell them how to make it via a history book. We don't invent it. They tell us from the history book. Now imagine for me how that transmitter got invented. You're quibbling, snapped Howe. You're refusing to face a fact because you can't explain it. I say face the fact and then ask for an explanation. Why not ask them, said Graves, how to make a round square or a five-sided triangle? End of section three.